as you know, through the book of Genesis. And as we're working through the book of Genesis, we are still seeking all the answers that we can get out of the book of Genesis. Today, you may note the title, Answers from Genesis, The Tale of a Tree. And this is actually part one. We'll finish this um, later. But we are excited about this. And what you notice from the title, what you may note from the title is that today we are coming upon the portion in Genesis where we discuss the fall of man. Now, one of the mistakes that many churches make and many people make in congregations is that they assume that they are really, really biblically literate. They assume that they know all the, the, the biblical history, the biblical narrative, and that they, that they understand it. And one of the things that we try to do at this church is not assume either way. So we don't assume that you know too much, and we don't assume that you don't know anything at all. And so I don't want to assume today how much you know or where you may stand, but what I do want to do is take what we'll talk about today and my prayer is that it will provoke you to think, provoke you to think, provoke you to think about, you know, where Satan came from, where sin came from, why God put a tree in the middle of the garden, what that meant for them then and what that means for us today. Now, with that being said, I, I want to make sure that, you know, you don't check out of this sermon today because you think you understand all the ins and outs, all the depths of what we talk about when we talk about um, creation and Adam and Eve and the fall of man. So what, what we have to do today is more than just see what happened. We all know what happened, but we want to see how we are affected today by what happened in the Garden of Eden. And I always stress to, to all Christians that in as much as it is important for us to, to know what we believe, we got to know why we believe what we believe. And knowing what we believe is essential to how we are able to apply what we believe to our lives. Without proper understanding of the biblical text, it is impossible for us to apply any of it to our lives. And that's what we want to do today. And with that being said, let's introduce our text. Genesis 2 and 15. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. All right, so... With that, we all know this is a pretty familiar text and one that um, I've actually referred to several times before. There are layers here that we have covered before, and there are some that we will look at for the first time today. So the first thing that we see is that God took Adam and he placed him in the Garden of Eden and he gave him a job. Now, we've talked about this before. A job is not the, the effect of the fall, but a job is what he had prior to the fall. God gave him a job. We've noted that before. Now, when he placed Adam, however, not only did he give him a job, but he gave Adam instructions. He gave him direct instructions. And that is the first part of what we want to see today. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, 
you shall surely die. Now, up to this point, we have seen God instruct man. He told them to subdue creation, to be fruitful, to multiply. But this time that we see that he instructs Adam, he gives him a negative consequence. We have not seen this before. And in that negative consequence, he tells him there will be retribution for your disobedience. If you disobey me, you will surely die. Now, there are several different trees in the garden by which God says can provide all of the nourishment that you need, Adam. I want you to get your nourishment from all of those trees because remember, prior to the fall, guess what man didn't do? Man did not eat meat. We were all vegetarians, which, by the way, how do we know the creation story is right? Because to this day, man has no teeth that are, that are designed for them to eat meat. We have flat vegetarian teeth to this day. So prior to the fall, all you had to do was obey God, and eat of the trees by which he said you can eat, which were all of them, save one. And he tells them, in the day that you do this, you will surely die. Now, this is where it gets interesting. Now, not just because of the fact that there is a consequence, but it's what that consequence is. The consequence for Adam's disobedience is death. It is death. You shall surely die in no uncertain terms. Now, why is this unique? Because there has yet to be any occurrence of death at all. Adam doesn't even know what death is. There is no occurrence of death. And so God says, in the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. What does that mean? See, God has introduced death to Adam, and it's the first time that we see death or dying mentioned. With that being said, we must understand what he meant when he said to die. And that brings us to our first point today. Point number one, death means separation from God. That is what death is. Death means separation from God. Essentially, death in all terms means separation from God. See, we know that death here simply can't just be a reference to us physically dying because in that moment, on that day, which we will see when Adam and Eve would sin, they did not die physically. Now, knowing that, we also know that God is immutable and incapable of lying. So what we need to be able to do is reconcile what exactly is happening here. Because God tells them in the day that you eat of that tree, you will surely die. Yet they continue to live. Now, every time I preach, I try, I try to take the perspective that I had as a child when I would hear preachers ruminate about all these things. And it didn't make sense to me. I, I didn't understand it. And I would always wonder, why would they not explain what this meant? You said that in the day you eat of it, that they're going to die. But they didn't die. So how can I reconcile this? See, I know that everybody in this room has probably had that same question before. So what we want to do is every question that you have about the Genesis text, we want to answer them. So... How do we know that this isn't just a reference to dying physically? Well, as we always do, we use scripture 
as our backbone for the matter. John 5.24 tells us, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but get this, but has passed from death to life. John 8.51, truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. He will never see death. There it is. Death is not merely the time when life ends, when we take our last breaths, when life ceases, but it is being pulled out of the relationship that we have with God. At the moment that Adam and Eve would fall into sin, they died spiritually. But it did also open the door for natural death to reign in humanity through sin. We know this because we read, uh, we read it a few weeks ago when the scripture says that in Adam all died. Now, what does that mean? When we are born in my womb, my mother, I was shaped in sin, born in iniquity. I am born here needing to be reconciled back in relationship with God, which means we are born dead. We are born apart from him, from him, not in relationship with him. When Jesus comes, he reconciles us back into relationship from, with the Father. Therefore, we don't pass from life to death, but we pass from death to life. And so when it says that they died, it's because the relationship that was there between God and man was separated. Listen, it is far better for any believer to pass away in the sweet grace of God than for a non-believer to, to live freely as they please. That's why we say, I would rather die with him than live without him. To live apart from him is to truly die. And in that, the ultimate death is to be separated from God for all eternity. See, we remember the horror of the rich man who is able to see into eternity as he is in hell. And he can see, the Bible tells us, Lazarus in Abraham's bosom, but there is a big gulf in between him. Now, the thing about it is he is in hell able to clearly see that he's not in heaven. While Lazarus is there in eternal bliss, unable to see that he's not in hell. And so he says, will somebody go back? Let me go back to tell my brothers about this. And he says, no. Because if they didn't believe Moses and the prophets, they won't even believe if a man comes back from the dead. Now, what we miss is that in that time, Jesus had not died and risen and ascended to the Father and paid the atonement for our sins. So imagine the greater revelation that we have if we die and go to hell knowing that we have Moses, knowing that we have the prophets. But then Hebrews said in the old times, he spoke by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken by his son, by which he gave us his son to be the high priest who stands in the gap between us and God and who mediates for us on our behalf. Imagine the tragedy it will be when we pass away apart from him. 
Knowing that the sin that reigned in us through death had been atoned for. And all we had to do is accept that gift of righteousness that Jesus presented to us. Now, here God tells Adam that disobedience to his plain instruction is that he will die. Now, I think we like to do our best to be as reasonable as we possibly can. And in that, I like to answer the difficult questions. So, we do this so that you won't be sitting around one day at work and somebody starts telling you, well, you know, this really doesn't make sense and that doesn't make sense. And you start thinking, you know what, that doesn't make sense. My preacher never told me that. My pastor never addressed that. So, I don't want you to be in that position today. So let's ask a difficult question. And if you've ever asked this question to yourself, I just want you to think, all right, so I'm not the only one. This is a question. Why did God put the tree there in the first place? Okay, so I'm not the only one that's thought about that, huh? Okay, because I had to try to rationalize this, especially when I wasn't a believer. God, you expect perfect perfection, righteousness from us. Yet, you placed a tree there so that we would obey you, which, by the way, if you are sovereign like you claim to be, you knew there was never a chance that we would obey you. Why put the tree there in the first place? Now, if I don't point this out, then someone else will, and I don't want any of you to be led astray. So, the first thing that we must, we must reconcile is what do we know about God? To answer this question, what do we know about God? One, we know, Romans 9 tells us, there is no injustice with God. Zero. Romans 9 makes that emphatically clear. There is no variableness in him. There is no sin in him. There is no wrong in him at all. He is not just some malevolent figurehead who is just waiting to get us. So, if God's great desire for us is to glorify him and if perfect obedience, which he said, to him most glorifies him, why is there a tree in the middle of the garden that we cannot touch? If God, you expect perfect obedience from us, if you hadn't put the tree there, oh, wait a minute, then you can't get perfect obedience from us. Because unless there's something there by which I can disobey, there can't be something by which I can obey. And so without the tree, guess what happens? There is no disobedience there's also no obedience. Without the tree, there is no unrighteousness. But guess what there is and also? There is also no righteousness. I don't want to jump ahead. We're going to get into it. There are times that God's immediate purposes are concealed from mankind, while there are others that he makes it explicitly clear through Scripture. And I believe that there are some truths that we know about God in Scripture that will help us figure out why he put this tree here. To do that, let's look at Scripture. Let's look in the book of Job. Let's look at Job chapter 1, verse number 6. Now, 
There was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord and Satan also came among them. The Lord said to Satan, from where have you come? Satan answered the Lord and said, from going to and fro on the earth and from walking up and down on it. And the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil? Then Satan answered the Lord and said, does Job fear God for no reason? In other words, he only fears you because you put a hedge around him. Have you not put a hedge around him and his house and all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands and his possessions have increased in the land. But stretch out your hand and touch all that he has and he will curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, behold, all that he has is in your hand only against him. And I stretch out your hand. So Satan went from the presence of the Lord. So let's see if we can navigate through this. And I want you to be able to connect what's happening here based on what happens in the garden. God, God has provided so well for Job that as Satan comes, as God is meeting with the council of the heavenly host, Satan is able to enter in and the Lord asks him, where have you been? He says, I've been going to and fro. We know that his chief goal is to steal, kill and destroy, which means he had been going to and fro all throughout the earth to find somebody that he could destroy. And it is God who presents Job. And he asks him, have you considered my servant Job? And Satan says, you know what I have, but you have placed a hedge of protection around him. And by the way, I know that that hedge of protection is the only way that he fears God. The only reason that he even has reverence for you is because you provide for him. But I guarantee if you take away all that you've blessed him with, he will sin against you and curse you to your face. Now... This seems right in line with the character of Satan, and we will see later how he does this. But this is what he does. He is seeking someone that he may destroy, and then he makes the crowning assertion. He only fears you because you have blessed and protected him. But if you take away what he has, then his heart will be removed from you. That is a massive assertion that he makes. The only reason Job is faithful to you is because there has never been a reason for him to be unfaithful. Thus, he serves you. Now, God who knows all then tests Job. And inasmuch as he shows Satan that the relationship is actually built off of truth, it only deepens the relationship that Job has with God because now not only does he see God as the provider, but he also sees God as the deliverer, as the healer, as the restorer. And so his relationship with God is deepened because God not only provided for him, but when these in his life went awry, God was consistent, God was constant in his position. So in laws, God is able to demonstrate more glory and more power in the life of Job. Now, when we think back to our text, God has placed a tree in the garden. In other words, he gave them an option to choose. See, this brings up some more questions that we have to reconcile. If God is sovereign, which means he is in absolute control. 
If God is sovereign, then that means he could have prevented Adam and Eve from eating the fruit. Am I right? Absolutely. This is true. Now, then, this is what the opponents will say. If God is sovereign, then he is the one to blame for Adam and Eve's sin. This is not true. This can't be true. God's scales of justice are so beyond our comprehension that there are no words to adequately describe it. But what I can tell you is that God operates sovereignly according to his own will. And he does what most glorifies him. Therefore, God cannot be the one to blame for evil. God will, however, use the tragedy of evil to accomplish his divine and sovereign plan. We know this because in the book of Isaiah, God uses the king of Assyria to kill and judge the Israelites. And then he judges the arrogant heart of the king. He absolutely uses evil for correction and discipline. The beautiful thing about God is that there is never a single second that he is out of control. There is never a second that he is unsure. There is not one iota of doubt or any period that he doesn't know what things are happening or what's going on. And so point number two today is God is in control. God is in control. Let's go further. Genesis chapter 3, verse 1. So this is the the crowning point when we see the fall. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. The Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it. God didn't actually say that. She added that part. Lest you die. But then the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight in the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Then the eyes of both were open and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. So we are introduced here to the serpent. And I do think conventional wisdom will bold to us knowing that the serpent is Satan himself. Now, another thing that we have to reconcile is the the origin of Satan. So, again, this is probably a question you had. Who is he and where does he come from? There is no prior mention of Satan in our text. So who is it? How are we sure that the serpent is even Satan? Certainly. The scripture tells us that he is. 
In Revelation 12, 9, it says, And the great dragon was thrown down, the ancient serpent, who was called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. So we know for a fact that that serpent in the garden was, in fact, Satan himself. So we know that. So where does he come from? Where does he come from? Has anybody else ever had that question? Where does Satan come from? Oh, he was a Lucifer, right? Let's see. Ezekiel 28 and 12. Son of man, raise a lamentation over for the king of Tyre and say to him, Thus says the Lord God, You are the sickening of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. You were in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone was your covering. Sardius, topaz, and diamond, bearer, honors, and jasper, sapphire, emerald, carbuncle, and crafted in gold were your settings and your engravings. On the day that you were created, they were prepared. You were an anointed guardian cherub. I placed you. You were on the holy mountain of God. In the midst of the stones of fire, you walked. You were blameless in your ways from the day you were created. This is the verse. Till unrighteousness was found in you. That's it. Satan is a fallen angel who desired God's position. He desired God's authority. Thus, he challenged it. He was arrayed beautifully and his wicked desire within him led him to rebel against God. Now, God said that he was blameless until unrighteousness was found in him. God did not place that unrighteousness in Lucifer. It was already in him because his desire was contrary to God. In his pre Fall state, we see that he is still an angel, he is still able to possess, and he possesses the pre fall being of the serpent, which still had legs. And he possesses him, and he deceives Adam and Eve into rebellion against God. We see that he, maintra- he maintains all of his angelic traits because the Bible says he was more crafty than any other beast of the field. He is deceitful. He is a con artist who only seeks to defile everything that God has created. Now, now we do have a problem. Is God then the originator of evil? See, if we are saying that God is responsible for all of creation, which he is, then did God himself create the evil that we needed to be saved from? Now, I want you to think about this. If God is in fact the originator of evil, then every standard of righteousness that he has for us is null and void. Why is that? Because God cannot hold me accountable for evil that I could not have resisted if he is the originator of it. In fact, how dare you, God, have any standard of righteousness for me if you are the responsible party for the thing that I need salvation from? And if God is the originator of evil, then he can't be good. 
So how did evil get here? If God is the originator of evil, then the injustice that we said could not be found in him. Guess what? It's found in him. And Jesus is only his get out of hell free card because he screwed up in the garden. God can't be the originator of evil. He can't be the one who made us responsible for sinning. Because if he's responsible, then we are not. And then God can't hold us accountable for those sins because he's the one who caused the sin in the first place. So, how does evil get here? The Bible tells us unrighteousness was found in him. It was in him. It was his wickedness. It was his desire. It was him alone, Satan alone, that brought him to the point that he blatantly rebelled against God. And after that, he has then gone on a destruction spree to bring as many people with him to hell as he possibly can. See, after that, we see that he has done and tried to do to all of us what he did with Adam and Eve, what he did to Job, what he tried to do to Jesus, and what he's tried to do to every one of us. He has tried to lead every single one of us into rebellion against God since the day we were born. That's been his chief goal. So what does this mean for us? Let's make it clear. Since Adam and Eve, every one of us has been responsible for our own sins. Yes, we inherited the sin nature from Adam. But I know this is a question that people always have. Well, God, if he wanted perfect obedience and righteousness, shouldn't have put that tree there in the first place. But this is the issue. If there is then no tree there in the first place and that he knows that we need a savior, then our great cry to God would be you never gave us a chance. You never allowed us to prove we were righteous enough. And I get sick of the people who are mad at Adam and Eve. If it wasn't Adam and Eve, it would have been you. You would have sinned. We all would have sinned. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So even if it wasn't them, let's say God put you, you old righteous soul. You would have done just the same thing that they did. Because in them, just like in us, there was unrighteousness. And God knew it was there. But because God's scales of justice are so perfectly weighted, he gave us the opportunity to prove not to him, but to prove to ourselves that our righteousness can't be our own. Look at this. Let's just say he lets us live and eat and never puts a tree there. God can then not even brag about us being his great creation because then our righteousness is our own. And you know how we're going to walk around? 
We're going to walk around these little self-righteous individuals who have no need of God because guess what, God? I got my own righteousness. I don't need you. I got it, God. I was righteous on my own. But God in his sovereignty gave us an opportunity to prove ourselves. And we did. We proved ourselves. We are sinners apart from God. And when he could have killed us, he gave us an out in Jesus Christ says, no, I know you can't be righteous without me. So guess what I'm going to do? I'm going to give you myself. I'm going to give you my son. And he's going to be the vehicle by which righteousness with God is restored. Without that tree, there is no opportunity for us to see that we are sinful and unrighteous apart from him. We don't need him. We don't need his righteousness. See, the Bible lets us know that we sin because of the desire that is within us. When Adam and Eve sinned, see, we don't understand the timeline, we don't know the time frame, but at some point, God gave Adam the instruction not to eat of the fruit. So, how long were they able to stave it off? I don't know. Hours? Months? Years? I don't know. But at some point, when Satan came around and tempted them, I can guarantee you this. That was not the first time they had thought about eating from that tree. It was the first time that they felt justified in eating from that tree. Because the voice of the serpent came and it was contrary to God. And this is the same way that Satan manipulates us today when we know the truth. When we know what God's standard of righteousness, God's standard of holiness, God's standard of living is, there's always that little serpent, usually a friend of ours, who comes and says, but you know, grace. Y'all can be together. See, God in the old time, he ain't really mean. See, he that was old, but God know, you know, y'all can live together now. That's cool. See, when God says, you know, homosexuality, I don't know, that was back then. See, it's, it's different now. You know, cultures change. It's a different context. Oh, no, no, I know that. I know that he said you couldn't do that then, but God didn't know that. It's, no. God's standard of righteousness has not changed, and it is only when Satan does what he has done since the beginning that he lets a voice which, which we think is reason is really just a lie. Let's look at this last text of the day, James one and thirteen. This is to confirm that evil does not come from God. Let no one say, when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. God only puts limits on himself. And this is a limit that God assigned for himself. And this is it. For God cannot be tempted with evil. And he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. 
Now, what will God do? God would absolutely place anything, allow anything to encounter coming to our path. And we think, God, you tempted me. But he's not. Because, let's be for real, you're only attracted to what you're attracted to. You could be at a gym working out. And let's say you like tall, thick, light-skinned people. It can be 50 people who walk by you who don't fit that frame. And you're not attracted to it. And then if one does, you say, oh, the Lord is tempting me. So people can't walk by you now because God is tempting you? No, he's not. It was your own heart. It was your own desire. It was your own sin nature within you that led you astray. Now, if there is no tree in the garden, if there is no opportunity of sin, then our righteousness would have been our own pride and joy. We, have, we would have been wrapped up in our ability to be right apart from God. And we would have loved it. But this is a kicker. It just never would have happened. It just never would have happened. There could not have been righteousness on our own. So, why does God put the tree there if he knows that? Why does God put the tree there if he knows that we can't be righteous on our own? He puts the tree there so that we can know it. He did it so we could know it. See, if we were created needing this Redeemer, we would have said, God, you never gave us a chance. God, you never trusted us. But God knew from the beginning that we could not have righteousness without him. But he gave us the opportunity and we still broke the covenant with him. But thanks be to God that he did not just leave us there, but he gave us an out in his son, Jesus Christ. Because in him there was no sin. And the righteousness that was found in him has now been imputed to all of us who believe. And we all have an opportunity to be saved because of that. And so as we celebrate during this Christmas season, listen, you know, everybody's conviction is their own. But it's the reminder that we needed a Savior. You know, the gifts are fine. We don't even celebrate it in the right month. We needed a savior. And while the world is commercializing and monetizing it, don't let us forget we needed a savior. And God sent us one. The king of the world, the king of the universe, the priest by which we needed all our sins to be taken away, the atonement was born of a virgin. And he came in the exact imprint of God. The lamb slain before the foundation of the world to take away the sins of the world. So what do we do? We celebrate him. Let's pray.